How's my microphone battery? All right. Both batteries are good. All right, good deal. According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me if you would in Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16. I think we've tied together what we've been looking at in verses 1 through 9. And uh, we're ready to get our first look at 10 through 15. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this morning and the truth of Your Word and the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, we thank You for the the book of Proverbs and the wisdom that is eternal, Father. Uh, Hard to believe it was written 3,000 years ago because it's so alive and powerful and vivid for us today. I pray that we would be humble to receive the word implanted that is able to save our souls. Humble us, Father, to receive this word. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so as we've broken it down, we've really been dealing with main point one, and then subpoints A through I, whatever that adds up to, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That's nine subpoints under uh, main point one. Verses 1 through 9 portray the human divine tandem operations of God's wisdom in our life. That is what happens when God works in and through us of His good pleasure. How God works in and through us. He works in our thinking, He works in our speaking, He works in our actions. And we have that with uh, verse 1 and verse 9. God is at work both in the thinking and doing. He shapes our thinking through His Word. He also freely shows Himself in our words and in our deeds. And really that's what verse 1 and verse 9, they form bookends of this poetic unit. In verse 1, it's the thinking and the speaking. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. God's at work in our speaking, in our our thinking first, and then in our speaking. And then in verse 9, again, it's the mind first, but then instead of speaking, it's actions. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And so in both our, uh, in, on all three, in our thinking, in our speaking, and in our doing, God has His, uh, God has His work. He's at work in and through us uh, to will and to do of His good pleasure. All right, then we went down through C, D, E, F, G, H, I. Let me get past these. We, last week we were dealing with the uh, issues on atonement from verse 6. Loving kind, by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord one keeps away from evil. And so there's a difference between justification and sanctification. We recognize that. We recognize that atonement is the means to an end, the means to many ends actually, but not an end unto itself. That God is not simply content to save us and let it go at that. That atonement is not the finality of God's plan, it's the beginning of God's plan. When you get saved, you're created under, in, in Christ Jesus unto good works, which were prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so uh, since we've received a positional sanctification, we are then expected to walk in experiential sanctification. In other words, there needs to be a follow-up to getting saved, and we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We need to keep on growing. We need to advance to maturity. We need to uh, engage in our priestly function, our soldier function, our ambassadorial function. There's so much that uh, we are called to do. And this tandem of grace and truth I love it because this tandem of grace and truth, as it's expressed here, the, the chesed in the Hebrew and the uh, mf for loving kindness and truth, that's spoken of as charis and aletheia in the New Testament. In John chapter 1, verse 14 and verse 17, we have the reference to the law came through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And that's, uh, that's the, the blessing there. We also looked at verses uh, 7 and 8. Last week with points H and I, divine favor has human effects among friends, disinterested parties, and even enemies. When you find favor in the eyes of somebody, in fact we had an illustration of that uh, between uh, just since last week, uh, somebody that found favor in the eyes of somebody and we go, wow, that's exactly what that's about. 
and it, maybe it's a supervisor, maybe it's a boss, maybe it's uh, some, some other circumstance in life, and God does His work so that your testimony has an impact in that other person's thinking. And it's called finding favor in the eyes of somebody. And uh, that's what we deal with there. And under point I, the wealth-poverty spectrum. This is uh, the issue with uh, better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. And so there's different kinds of income levels and all kinds of believers and all kinds of tax brackets. And, uh, and, we're not, and, and the Bible does not put uh, any kind of uh, scale with respect to saying that you know, being rich is better than being poor or that rich people are better people than poor people. None of that. The only contrast, when the Bible puts the, the, the financial spectrum up there, it puts the financial spectrum up there in a, in a juxtaposition with the righteousness spectrum. And uh, the idea is, of course, that if you are not walking with the Lord, it doesn't matter how rich you are. And if you are walking with the Lord, it doesn't matter how poor you are. That uh, the financial spectrum, the wealth-poverty spectrum, is, is put in a juxtaposition. That is, it's put up there in parallel to compare and contrast and understand what the real issues are. And so um, God's standard of righteousness is the real issue. And this is true, and we get this, it's true throughout the Scriptures, in, uh, throughout the Proverbs, throughout the Psalms. We talked about it in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, what is uh, godliness as a means of gain? Well, when accompanied by contentment, the great gain yeah, can, be, can be recognized. All right, so we move on then, and verses 10 through 15. Let me read them before I put the point up here, and you'll see maybe something will jump out at you as I read. So, uh, verse 10, the, a divine decision is in the lips of the king. His mouth should not err in judgment. A just balance and scales belong to the Lord. All the weights of the bag are his concern. It is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts, for a throne is established on righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and he who speaks right is loved. The fury of a king is like messengers of death, but a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face is life, and his favor is like a cloud with the spring rain. All right, so there we have it, verses 10 through 15. Did you notice anything common weaving these verses together with respect to verses 10 through 15? Anything jump out at you? How about the word king? We're going to get political. Verses 10 through 15 spotlight kings with a discourse on the ideal king. In fact, every verse except verse 11 has either the word king or kings in it uh, or throne, concepts related to uh, political life. And even verse 11, even though the, the name of the king is absent, the, uh, and that's, it's absent for a reason. And I think uh, we'll expand upon that when we talk about biblical economics on a national uh, stage. But with respect to uh, political issues that we're dealing here, we're going to talk about an ideal king. And it's a king, and of course Proverbs was written by a king. Proverbs was written by King Solomon, who learned wisdom from his father, who was also a king. And so there's a lot of uh, issues here. In fact, it's going to conclude at the end with uh, the words of the king's mother to the king, about a virtuous woman and marriage advice aspects there. So um, anyway, this is what we're going to deal with here into point two. And I don't think we'll have all the A through I that we have uh, in point one, but we'll have at least A through D as we uh, work our way through these verses. Um, So starting with maybe the most difficult of all is verse 10. A divine decision is in the lips of the king. His mouth should not err in judgment. And it's one, too, that I also want to read different Bible translations on. So good thing I've got my software up and running here. Proverbs 16.10. And I want to bring it up. Let's just bring up my top Bibles. (laughs) We'll spend a, a long time here if we're going to read every English Bible in my library. All right, and pop out. If anyone can read that, I'm impressed. You've got some superpower vision going on. In uh... 
All right, we're getting better now. All right. Proverbs 16.10. Whoops. All right. Particularly, I know uh, at least one or a couple people sit here with New King James versions, New King James Bibles. And so uh, you've got that word divination in there, which uh, might make you uncomfortable. Because divination is a bad thing. <laughs> divination is a sin. Divination is worthy of death. And, uh, and uh, what's curious about it, what makes this verse so difficult, is the Hebrew word is the word for divination. And so the New King James uh, went ahead and used it. And uh, all the other English translations said, uh, we want to do something else with it. <laughs> all right. We don't want our king speaking divination. And so they struggle with it. But something's happening here because this is what God is saying. So a divine decision or an oracle, might be another rendering, an oracle, that is the utterances of the king or the utterances of God, okay? A divine decision is in the lips of a king. Or the uh, Christian Standard Bible, the Holman Christian Standard Bible says God's verdict is on the lips of a king. His mouth should not give an unfair judgment. And in both of those, there's really two halves to this proverb, the A part and the B part, like every proverb. And so the, the first part has a puzzle. What do we do with the divination? What do, we, what, what do we understand with that? And then also with what he speaks, is it, uh, is it should not? Is it must not? Is it does not? Uh, how do we understand what comes out of his mouth? So uh, again, the Christian Standard Bible, or the Holman, says God's verdict is on the lips of a king. His mouth should not give an unfair judgment. New King James, divination is on the lips of the king. His mouth must not transgress in judgment. And uh, that's, that's more forceful than a should not, is a must not. And I think it helps to complete the, the picture of the two halves, the A part and the B part of the verse. The old King James, AV 1873, which by the way, there's lots of King James editions from 1611 to the modern times, but uh, my preferred King James is the AV 1873. A divine sentence is on the lips of the king, his mouth transgresseth not in judgment. And that's not an imperative, it's not a command, it's not a should not, it's not a must not, it's a does not. His mouth transgresseth not in judgment. So this, you understand what this is saying? This says that when the king speaks, it is the divine sentence. And that his mouth does not err. His mouth does not transgress when he judges. See? And so there's a lot of, if, if that's what this text is saying, there's a doctrine here we've got to understand with respect to things that uh, church and state wrestle, uh, uh, conflicts have, have risen through the years and different things with the divine right of kings and, and by what divine authority does a king say what he says? And is, is, is the, what the king says automatically law because it's God's words on his lips? What the verse is talking about. And if it's talking about it in this way, how do we understand it? Because there's a lot of wicked kings in the history of the world that are clearly not speaking God's words. Or are they? And that's that's going to be our puzzle before we leave here at the top of the hour. Finally then, uh, another one of my more favorite Bible texts is uh, called the Scriptures. And this is one from a Hebrew mindset that does a lot of transliterations of Hebrew names, especially in the names of Yahweh and the names of God. Um, Not in this verse though, but in verse 10 it says, an oath is on the lips of the sovereign. In right ruling his mouth trespasses not. In right ruling his mouth trespasses not. And uh, that's another way to, to render this. Uh, now you can spot in verse 11 where the scripture says a right scale and um, and it puts Yahweh in there for the name of Yahweh. Alright. Well there's five different examples. If we want to do all English Bibles we can. And Like I say, we'll spend a lot of time doing that, so I'm not going to sit here and read them all to you tonight or this morning. But um, just taking the time to look through all these, that's a lot of English Bibles. (laughs) Um, Finally ending with Young, Young's literal translation. An oath is on the lips of a king, in judgment his mouth trespasseth not. 
So he wanted to use the word oath for the word oracle there. Inspired decisions are on the lips of a king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. All right. Back to the slideshow. Point being is it's a tough verse to deal with. We'll start with the, the, with the undeniable truth. Kings are public servants of God. Their decrees should be considered as God's decrees. We're going to start with that and then we'll answer the yeah buts. Then we'll answer the complaints. Then we'll answer the well what about this, what about this, what about this. Okay? Let's just start on the surface of what the text is saying. Kings are public servants of God. They're ministers. God has appointed them. God has designed them. Even as He designed the, the laws of divine establishment from volition to marriage to family to nations. So kings are, God, are public servants of God. Their decrees should be considered as God's decrees. When they speak they are representative of God's authority on earth. And so their utterances are to be obeyed. We are to be in subjection to the ruling authorities that are over us. And when we disobey, we must only disobey when we're obeying God rather than man in, uh, in, a con- in, a, in the tension of what happens there when they're in conflict. But let's start with the basic and then we'll work our way through the other principles. So kings are public servants of God. And their decrees should be considered as God's decrees. And it's, it's easy to accept this, of course, if it's King David. <laughs> you know, And what King David says, because he's a man after God's own heart, and he's, he's walking with the Lord, and he's in fellowship, and he writes such beautiful psalms, and we read, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and, and uh, he maketh me to lie down. And we, we read these things, and the words of the king are the words of God. And they do end up in Scripture. Okay? Or King Solomon in his wisdom. And he speaks a proverb. The words of the king are the words of God. We're great with that. Because they're in fellowship, they're his agents, they're his servants. But what about when David is sleeping with Bathsheba? What about when David's walking in darkness? What about when Solomon is, has a thousand wives and he's walking in darkness? And, and what happens if you've got a wicked king? Okay, We'll talk about that. It's coming up. We'll deal with the yabuts after we teach the, the basic principle. So uh, let's get some of these other scriptures and we'll see what it's about. I want to also, besides Psalm 1610, where clearly it is the word for divination. It is the word for, uh, which is normally a sin. It is a word. If, if, you use a, if you go to a sorcery and witchcraft, if you go to uh, like the Witch of Endor or something along those lines, or you're trying to commune with demonic powers in order to glean information that's not available in the human realm, that's divination, and that's wrong every single time. But if you are the anointed king of, of a people group, and God is the one that has put you there, and God is the one who has anointed you, and God is the one that's speaking through you, then it's not a sin to utter an oracle, to utter, you know, when you're speaking from the Lord. See, like it's not blasphemy for Jesus to say he is God. Because he is God. <laughs> okay? It's blasphemy for anybody else except Jesus to say that he's God. That's blasphemy. But when Jesus says he's God, that's not blasphemy. Make sense? So for somebody to consult an oracle, to consult a uh, to consult a, a medium, or to use witchcraft to try to glean information beyond the human realm, that's called divination, and it's a sin, it's wrong. But the king who's speaking the utterances of God, if that's what he's doing, that's not wrong. Are we clear? All right. We'll we'll say some more on this here in a moment. Psalm 82. I hesitate to bring this up, but I'll bring it up anyway. Psalm 82, because this also is a psalm that requires work. Psalm 82 is angelic. It's entirely about the realm of the angels. And uh, Psalm 82 addresses issues in the invisible realm and the heavenly spectrum. Um, And when we do draw application to human kings, uh, it's going to be on a secondary basis. And uh, and some folks struggle with it. Jesus loved it. He threw this in the the Pharisees' face when they were critical of him. Because he pointed down to verse 6 when when, uh, Psalm 82, 6, I said you are gods and all of you are sons of El Elyon. All of you are sons of the Most High. And so Jesus threw that verse to the Pharisees and said, what are you going to do with that? 
because uh, Scripture can't be broken. Scripture called these people gods. And so um, they didn't have an answer for him and they didn't want to answer his question related to that. But let's go back to the beginning. Psalm 82, God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. And so here is Elohim who stands in his own congregation, in his own assembly. And we have to ask ourselves, is this a heavenly assembly? Is this an earthly assembly? Is this the assembly of Israel? Is this, uh, you know, it's not the church clearly in the Old Testament, but what is this congregation about? And then he asks, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? God's chewing out his own counsel. God is upset. He is, he is not approving what this counsel is doing. And so he says, how long are you going to do this? Yahweh is not unjust, but his counsel is, uh, is failing to rise to his level because they're judging unjustly and they're showing partiality. He says, vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. This is what godly leadership should do. He says, rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Now again, this is in the heavenly realm. This is actually a description of their shortcomings and their judgment when the angelic realm ends in rebellion and he leaves the earth in a tohu wabohu judgment of destruction. I said, you are gods. All of you are sons of the Most High. The highest of all the angels were called Elohim. They were called gods. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possess, who possesses all the nations. All right. And so this, this is a powerful psalm, and it addresses the fall of the angels, and it addresses the, the change from the angelic nations when God gives the, the earth over to Adam, restores the earth to habitable conditions for Adam, and then the human nations that descend from Adam. But God possesses all the nations, the angelic nations and the human nations. In, uh, in these things. In any event, if you are not going to speak justly, if you are going to judge unjustly, if, um, if uh, you are not going to speak in the utterances of God, then God's going to remove you from that position. Okay? That's, the, that's the consequences here of the angels and their, and their shortcomings. In any event, it's another passage whereby a king or a judge or somebody in a political authority is uttering the utterances of God and held accountable when they don't. Held accountable if they're going to be in defiance of God. And so that, uh, that provides a nice counterbalance to, Psalm, to Proverbs 16 where some people could just read it absolutely and say, well, the utterances of the king are divine utterances. You have to do what they say, absolutely. Okay? All right. So there's a balance, and I think we can understand that. Um, Romans 13. Now we get some New Testament passages. Romans and 1 Peter. And they deal with authority, and they deal with why we're in subjection to the authority. Romans 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. There you go. That's your statement. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. We'll get to the yeah buts in a moment, but this is the basic statement. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. If it exists, if it's there, God put it there. That's the point. And this is what the verse is dealing with. And so it says, therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now those two verses are in perfect harmony with our verse this morning in Proverbs 16.10. That when the king speaks, it's divination, it's an oracle, it's an utterance of God. 
that when the king speaks, it's as if God is speaking. And so if you're going to defy the king, <laughs> you're, going to, you're defying God. If you're resisting authority, you're resisting God. And so that's the, that's the statement that we're finding here. It goes on, it's going to give some other explanations. Uh, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. So obey your, your king, follow the law, uh, do what's good, and, uh, and you're not going to have an issue. The king is there to punish you. See, if you're not in the habit of speeding all the time, you won't get nervous when you see the speed trap. But uh, you know, if your foot jerks towards the brake every time you see the cop car, you probably drive faster than you should be driving as a, as a general rule. You've got a guilty conscience. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Let me take a minute to confess and we can keep reading here. Um, all right. Notice though, verse 4, it is a minister of God. It is a minister. It is a public servant. That's why I use the phrase public servant. Kings are public servants of God. And so they're serving the Lord as they serve the public, as they serve the population, as they serve the people group. And God always, He created every uh, realm of, of the diet establishment. He created with structure for protection, for leadership, for service. You know, husbands to wives, parents to children, kings to uh, population groups. And this is how it's designed. There is a chain of command, there is authority in every realm as, as God designed it. So it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. Keep in mind, the sword was given to the state. It was not given in, to families, it was not given in marriage, it was not given in individuals. We ha- as, as individuals we have the right of personal self-defense, uh, as marriages and families, we can protect our wives, we can protect our children. But the administration of justice on a societal level is not family justice. It's national justice. It's political justice. We've got to be clear on that. It does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, there it is, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And so that's the function. And so you don't grab your clan and go, and you don't have a Hatfield McCoy kind of a, a civil war going on. You don't grab your clan and go get revenge because uh, you know the, uh, some honor was affected within the family or within the clan. As far beyond the, the realm of family, all justice is given to the king. All justice is given to the political governance that's over us. And so that's why we are to be in subjection. Every person is to be in subjection. And so finally then I guess verse 5, therefore, then we go down through verse 7. Uh, verse 5 says, therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So beyond the issue of the politics and beyond the issue of crime and punishment and other reasons why we're subject, there's earthly reasons to be subject to authority, but there's also spiritual reasons for being subject to authority. For conscience sake. And if you find that your soul uh, gets very comfortable defying authority as a rule, then your soul is going to have a lot of trouble in the spiritual realm paying attention to the Word of God. Because your soul is developing authority issues. Your soul is developing arrogance and, and rebellious, a rebellious spirit. And so beyond the political reasons why we obey our leaders, it says also for conscience sake. Because of this you also pay taxes. Rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. So render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And so we become uh, good student, uh, good uh, citizens. We become obedient citizens. We become uh, because we're fearing God. We're rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar because we're rendering unto God what is God's. And God is the one that tells us to be subject to the governing authorities. Not for their sake, for God's sake. That's just like, it's no different really. Husbands and wives, it says, wives, be subject to your husbands, what? As unto the Lord. It doesn't say be subject to your husbands because they deserve it. Be subject to your husbands because of whatever. It's as unto the Lord. And that's the same issue here with being subjection to the governing 
authorities. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Again, for the Lord's sake. Say, well, I don't want to. I didn't vote for that guy. (laughs) Not the point. It's for the Lord's sake. To every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as, so by doing right, by maintaining your public witness, by living in, in public and, and personal wisdom. It's the will of God. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. All right, so this is what we have. And I think the Romans 13 passage and the, and the uh, First Peter passage are very harmonious with each other. I think they're also harmonious with, with uh, Proverbs 16, where we're going to see today in verses 10 through 15. We're looking at government as God designed it. We're looking at government as an ideal. We're looking at government as it's supposed to operate in the, in the plan of God. Much as with Proverbs, Proverbs often shows you the... Um, Typical way it works as you use wisdom, the normal procedure. Are there exceptions to the rule? Of course. And are there issues when a king goes bad? What if a government isn't punishing the evildoers? What if the government is rewarding the evildoers and punishing the righteous? In other words, a government can flip it upside down and and be in total defiance of God's plan. That's why I wanted to take you to Psalm 82 and show you how Yahweh was rebuking the, the angels and when they had blown it in their, in their governance. We're going to see other examples of that this morning as well. Okay, So all those yeah buts have answers. The, but the, the, the reality doesn't change. The reality doesn't change in terms of what we're to be in subjection to. And that's what it really comes down to. I think in, in Romans 13 um, a lot of folks don't like it. You know, I don't like it. Maybe you don't like it. I don't know. There's, uh, you know, there's adjectives in verse 1 and we want to change the adjectives. Because uh, when it says be in subjection to the governing authorities, we want to we want to change that to the righteous governing authorities or the the ones that are doing God's will. You know, uh we look down to, you know, a minister of God for good or or um we say, well, see they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, so I don't have to do what I'm supposed to be doing. And they use later verses to justify rebellion against the earlier verses. Wait a minute. No. It doesn't say the godly authorities. People want to write it that way. The godly authorities. Or the believing authorities. Or the biblical authorities. Or whatever. And so they say if it's a tyrant we can overthrow the tyrant. Wait a minute. It's not what it says. The only adjectives that are here, there's two adjectives. One adjective says ruling. <laughs> so there you go. If it's ruling, if it's in power, then, you, then you're subject. You're subject to it. The other adjective is existing. Those which exist. <laughs> All right? Those which exist. And so if it exists, if it's ruling, God put it there. Nothing exists outside of the will of God as far as what He is directing or what He is permitting. And so don't change the adjectives from ruling and existing. Those are the ones God wrote. Change the adjective to you know the ones you agree with or the godly ones or the righteous ones or whatever. Rewrite the Word of God to your own peril because that's not what it says. We can't add to the Word of God, we can't take away from the Word of God. Now there are issues of course with wicked kings, so let's deal with it. We already saw a little bit in Psalm 82, but let's deal with it. Um, And let me just also point out, fixing our bearings here in um, in, in, in Proverbs 16, verse 10 doesn't sit there by itself. All right? Yes, the uh, divine decision is in the lips of a king. When the king speaks, it's the utterances of God because God put that king there. 
His mouth should not err, does not err, must not err. We can discuss that. I think that's uh, best to understand for human kings as should not err. For Jesus Christ it's does not err. This is a presentation of a righteous king as an ideal and ultimately it's a prophecy of Jesus Christ. This is looking ahead to what Jesus will be like when he's king in the millennium. And uh, when he speaks it will be divine decisions on the, li- on the lips of a king. When he speaks his mouth will not err in judgment. In the meantime we've got human kings along the way that are going to be foreshadowing of Christ and some of them will be righteous and some of them will be wicked. And I think we have that. Uh, verse 12, it is an abomination for kings to commit wicked acts. So this text itself admits kings can go bad. And kings, they will go bad. It's going to happen. And it's an abomination when it happens. But who's still in charge? God's still in charge. We can rejoice in that. But he who speaks right, uh, the throne is established on righteousness. And then what happens when the king gets angry? The fury of a king is like messengers of death. All right, so we'll we'll address this. Here's the big what if, or the big yeah but that we get every time. Sub point one: rebellious and wicked kings are God's business, not ours. Rebellious and wicked kings are God's business, not ours. When it comes to throwing them down. God will do it in His timing. And uh, we want to be very hesitant. We want to be very fearful. David would not stretch his hand out against the Lord's anointed, even though he also was the Lord's anointed. He had the same anointing Saul had, and Saul was wicked. But when David had the chance to kill Saul, he wouldn't do it. He said it's in God's hands. God will bring him down when he sees fit and God will put me in office when he sees fit. David knew he was going to be the next king. He just had to wait until it happened. Rebellious and wicked kings are God's business, not ours. And so in the meantime, when when the wicked reign, the people groan. When the righteous reign, right, we can rejoice. We know that we groan under the subjection to the wicked king. It's not pleasant, not fun, but we Honor God by remaining in subjection and waiting for Him to change the political circumstances over us. Let's look at this in 1 Samuel. Let's start with 1 Samuel 15. First Samuel 15. See, it's curious to me because I see so much rebellion in our country today. It's, it's just a spirit of anti-authority and they want to change the administration now. They don't want to wait for the 2020 election. They want to impeach the president now and, and overthrow things now. And, uh, you know, well, wait a minute. Can't you wait upon the Lord? You're going to take it in your hands to do something? 1 Samuel 15, what happens if a king's rebellious? Well, <laughs> so I said 22 through 29, I guess uh, we can pick it up a little bit earlier. In verse 19, Samuel the prophet comes to King Saul and he says, Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? But you rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. In verse 20, Saul says, I did obey. <laughs> I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Well, he was told to leave nothing breathing. All right? But the people took some of the spoil sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And so uh, the people did it. The people did it. And um, I'm going to back up even more because my favorite verse is uh, 13 and 14. So Samuel came to Saul and said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Here's King Saul all happy with himself. Praise God. Hallelujah, brother. All these things are going great. We won the war. Everything's going great. 
And Samuel says, well then what then is the bleeding of sheep in my ears? <laughs> Why do I hear the sheep bleeding and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? He was told to leave nothing breathing. So what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? And so it comes down and well, you know, we brought them to sacrifice. They brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, notice, but the rest we've utterly destroyed. So he's just weaseling out, trying to make excuses for why he obeyed when he didn't really obey. Oh, we just wanted to do it for sacrifice. Oh, I was just going to do it to worship. Oh, I was just doing it, you know, yeah, I robbed a bank, but I, I was giving the money to the church. You know, I've got this great reason for what I'm, why I'm disobeying God. How lame is that? So Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. <laughs> Just wait till you hear. You know, that I regret making Saul king is what he said last night. So anyway, uh, then comes the rebuke and why did you not obey? He said, I did obey but the people kept the spoil. So I'm blaming the people now, just like Eve blamed the snake and Adam blamed Eve. Alright, verse 22, so Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed uh, than that of the fat of rams. Rebellion, now here we go, rebellion is as the sin of divination. It's the same word we have in Proverbs 16. Divination is supposed to be on the lips of the king. And here's this king in rebellion insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. See, God's in charge. And so rebellious and wicked kings, that's God's business, not ours. We suffer, we groan. When the, right, when the, when the wicked reign, the people groan, the righteous groan, but that's God's business, not ours. And he will remove that king sooner or later, and if it's later, He's got a reason for that too. He might keep that wicked king on there a long, long time because a wicked people need to have that wicked king for their judgment. So Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me and I may worship the Lord. It's kind of a Weasley confession. He does admit to it because it's, he's been exposed. But then he gives a reason. Well, I feared the people when I listened to their voice. You know, God doesn't want an explanation for our sin. He wants us to confess our sins. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. Now that imagery is so powerful. The edge of his robe tore as Saul's just clinging. You know, think about unbelievers clinging to what they cling to and then it just rips off and what are they left holding? So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. <laughs> and you tell you, man, what a rebuke. What a rebuke. That hit Saul. That was devastating to Saul. Given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. The decree has gone forth. Saul is being removed. David will be the next king. Now, that's the imagery there. Think about that with that torn robe. When we get over to chapter 24, how much time has gone by? And let me just, before I get to 24, since I'm looking at it, what do you have across the page there in chapter 16? You've got Samuel going to Bethlehem and anointing David to be the next king. His neighbor who is better than Saul. But David doesn't become king for 20 years, for you know a long time. But he does get anointed. He gets anointed in chapter 16 and, and verse 13 there. Alright. And then chapter 17 he kills Goliath and there's a lot of things that happen here. He, he gets to marry Saul's daughter. He becomes a military captain. He uh, becomes friends with Jonathan. He has to flee. Uh, becomes a renegade. Now he's a mercenary captain at Keilah. Now he's hiding in a cave. Alright, so we get to 1 Samuel 24. 
And you think, well, how long does this take? <laughs> you know, Samuel anointed him king. Is Samuel even alive anymore? I mean, how, how many years have gone by now? We know, I mean, the, the robe was ripped years ago. Why is, why is Saul still on the throne? Why does God prolong the judgment upon Israel in this way? Well, God knows what He's doing and God's got His plan. And so we have an issue here. Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines in 1 Samuel 24.1. He was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in the front of the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way while there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now what are the coincidences of this? Of all the caves he could have picked, <laughs> you know, hundreds of caves in the region, but the one that he picks is the one that David and his men are hiding in. And uh, David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. cave. And so the men of David said to him, Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I'm about to give your enemy into your hand, and you uh, shall do to him as it seems good to you. All right. I mean, you talk about getting caught with your pants down. This was literally... (laughs) I mean, what are you going to do? You get caught at a bad moment, and here's David with all of his soldiers, and you're alone in the cave. So David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. So there's the imagery. In the, in the earlier chapter, the, the part of the robe got cut off, but it was Saul gripping the Samuel's robe. Here, David is cutting off the edge of Saul's robe. But it came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. Remember, we're to be subject for conscience sake. If we rebel against authority, it can have a spiritual effect on our own soul. So he said to his men, far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. He is the king until God removes him. He's wicked? Yes. He's out of the will of God? Yes. He's under divine judgment? Yes. But he's still in the hands of God until God removes him from office. And so he would not stretch out his hand. He could. Could have. And he could have said, well, I'm also anointed. Didn't. Okay? That's a powerful statement. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not allow them to rise up against Saul. And Saul arose, left the cave, and went his way. Afterward, he was able to come out and prove his innocence and show him the the torn uh, robe and say, you know what I could have done to you? (laughs) But I didn't do it. Didn't do it. And uh, Saul has to uh, agree that uh, that David is more righteous than he is, and uh, and there it is. Anyway, so that's the issue there. Uh, Psalm seventy five. Psalm seventy five. About the same time frame here. It's not Davidic though. It's a Psalm of Asaph, but it's about the generation of David and Solomon. And uh, verses 6 and 7. For not from east, let's see, do I want more on this? What happens if, uh, all right, so it's a psalm of Asaph. Verse 1, we give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks, for your name is near. Men declare your wondrous works. When I select an appointed time, it is I who judge with equity. The earth and all who dwell in it melt. It is I who have firmly set its pillars, Salah. I said to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with insolent pride. Now that applies to every believer, but it applies most of all to kings. Uh, Very vulnerable to pride and arrogance. And that's what we see here. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. God is the one. He puts down one and exalts the other. Don't feel like it's your business to throw the king down, to overthrow the authority. National authority, political authority, parental authority, marital authority, the authority of our, of our all the realms of, of uh, divine establishment have authority structures. So, 
I like that. Psalm 75, verse 6 and 7. God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. God's in charge. Daniel 2.21 Taught this many times. It's my go-to passage. Is, uh, I go to Ukraine and teach Daniel in Revelation. Not next year though. Mark Musser is going to cover my class next year. <clears throat> I feel bad about that, but what do you do? God closes doors and there you have it. All right, Daniel 2.21. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about this tree and it gets revealed to Daniel. He's able to interpret the vision. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. This is what God does. And so the times and the epochs, when it comes for the, the sweeping history of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome, God's in charge of all of that. And even within each of those segments, within the, the Babylon segment, every king that comes and goes, that's God's sovereignty at work. In the Persian segment, every king that comes and goes is God's sovereignty at work. Same thing with Greece, same thing with Rome. It's all in God's sovereignty. He installs kings, he removes kings. That's God's business, not ours. And maybe the reason we struggle so much is because, of course, we are a representative republic, we have elections, we, we think that we have a, well, we do, we have a government of the people, by the people, for the people. <coughs> and so we get this idea in our heads that, well, we voted, we have the, the kings, we have the president, and the governor, and the mayor, and whatever. We have the, the leaders we voted for. Yes. In earthly terms, won't, don't, won't dispute that, okay? But we have the leaders God gave us because God remains sovereign. God's not a slave to our ballot box. God gives us the rulers that, that He wants us to have for our blessing or for our cursing. Chapter 4, when He puts the basest of men on here, I tell you, that gives us the... Uh, the statement, 417. This sentence is by the decree of the watchers. Remember there's angels that are watching all the affairs of men and Psalm 82 addresses that as well. When angels are in a supervisory relationship to human politics. Sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that El Elyon, the most high God, is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men, the basest of men. You know, you're going to boast about being king. Wait a minute, God might have selected you because he couldn't get, find anybody worse than you. <laughs> okay? He picked the ultimate judgment for this nation. It says the basest of men. Sometimes we get the ruler for our blessing and sometimes we get the ruler for our judgment. Which is why we submit. Why we don't overthrow it. Why we don't say, well, I hate this king, let's get rid of him and just get a better king. Well, we got the king God gave us, we better learn the lessons God wants us to learn. And then if we humble ourselves and repent and walk right, then maybe the grace of God will show favor and, and give us a king for righteousness. Or not. Maybe he's waiting for David to grow up. Maybe David's too young right now. So he's got to wait for 20 years, 25 years. God's in charge of all of that. Uh, verse 25 and verse 32 are repeats of that, I think, from verse 17. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has to learn this lesson, that he's going to be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that El Elyon is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And it takes him seven years to learn that lesson. Some of us take longer. Verse 32, you will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. You said the same thing three different times now. Can we figure it out? Do we get the point? Thankfully He does. He wakes up after seven years. Nebuchadnezzar sings a hymn to El Elyon. He praises Him. And uh, verses 34 through uh, 30. Five there. All right. 
He is able to humble those who walk in pride. We dealt with that a couple of weeks ago. You have a question on that? Uh-huh. And someone says, well, I'm going to use that light bulb. And I feel like God has a direct command not to. Light bulbs. But, okay. Yeah. yeah. For anything. Or I'm going to go five over the ceiling. Right, right, right. right. Jerusalem right. goes 70. Uh-huh. And God doesn't have a direct command on how fast i got to go, but he says to be subject. So if I get pulled over by the cop, I will be subject and I'll take the ticket. Okay. Commanded to be in subjection, correct. Okay, I'm going to try to rephrase this because nothing you said just got on the, on the recording, so I apologize for that. I should have gotten a microphone to you. Um, but uh, So we go to passages like, and do I have this coming up? Um, I want to address that because that's coming up. We've got subpoint two, subpoint three. We're going to address that because the, the apostles were commanded not to preach the gospel. And in Acts 5 it says, you know, you determine whether it's right to obey God rather than man. We are to be subject to God, we're to be subject to man. We render unto Caesar, we render unto the Lord. So it comes up, for example, the, the, the Nazi officers killing Jews, you know, were they just obeying commands? Well, wait a minute, you know, thou shalt, you know, we have the commands from God and, and to murder the Jews. You can't just claim, uh, you know, well, my king told me to do it, I'm going to do it. So uh, th- there are answers to that. There are biblical answers to that. And when God commands you to do something that violates your conscience, command, uh, violates Scripture, violates what have you, then believers have to decide whether or not they're going to obey God or whether they're going to obey. Because it's not the word obey, it's the verb to be in subjection. All right, so you still are in subjection even if you disobey. And the apostles remained in subjection when they disobeyed the command to not preach the gospel. And so they went to jail. They, they disobeyed, but they remained in subjection. Okay? And so, uh, but that doesn't also mean that we completely dismiss all the authority and just do what we want to do and be gods in our own eyes and, and be the authority, the anarchists unto ourselves. That's not subjection either. Right. So when it comes to uh, the um, letter of the law, the spirit of the law, when it comes to the, the discretionary enforcement that happens with respect to speed limits and with respect to other aspects like that, that goes into realms of Romans 14 in terms of personal convictions with respect to how the law is adjudicated and how the standards are uh, enforced by the law enforcement community. And that's part of where 12 years of law enforcement has impacted my thinking in terms of that. And in instructions I was given as far as what to write tickets for and what to, when to give warnings and the purpose for the speed limit and aspects like that. So um, light bulbs, uh, other, other things I think, you know, I would struggle um, to, to label myself as a freedom fighter for light bulbs. <laughs> you know, in, in the sense of, uh, you know, making it a spiritual issue uh, I'm going to obey God and not men because I'm going to use my incandescent light bulb until they can pry it from my cold dead fingers. The, uh, there, I think there are some things that some people, now this, I, you know, we can laugh with it, but different believers will come to different convictions over different things. And, and to be fair to them and to all of us, uh, there, there are legitimate questions that, that get dealt with in, in that realm. So stay tuned, we'll come back to this next week. Uh, we're going to have point two and point three as we deal with this in uh, what our Savior said in rendering under Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. But um, recognize though what we're dealing with here as it says on the screen a discourse on the ideal king, on the ideal king. Proverbs often gives us the ideal and in giving us the ideal um, it's get, it recognizes there are exceptions, it recognizes that there is sin and the fall and other things that happen. But in giving us the ideal, it shows us what we can pray for, we can work towards, and then what we can anticipate when our Savior comes. Because this is a picture of Jesus as the ideal king rules on, on the millennial throne. And so we'll have the blessings to, to go through the verses there and deal with it like that. All right, Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. 
I thank you for your faithfulness. <clears throat> Father, continue to open the eyes of our understanding that we may live the Word of God. The faith that we have, we have as our own conviction before you. Happy is he that does not condemn himself in what he approves. Thank you for the blessings of the Word of God. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.